take that Bible tonight and look over it just for a briefer time tonight in Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. There we spent some time in the Gospel of John. I thought it would be helpful to at least look at Mark's account. Um, And I'll read for you just to be able to read the account, I think, would be helpful part of it. Follow with me as I begin in Mark 15, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews... And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by uh, derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it it within it three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priest and the scribes mocked him uh, to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled sponge with sour wine, put it on the reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry. And the Bible says there that he breathed his last What a statement. Thanks for, again, being here tonight to to really, again, I said a sobering night, but obviously a wonderful night. And from our reading, I just really want to examine two verses tonight as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. So we're here, we're singing, and then all of us who are in Christ will have the privilege to partake and remember his death, but we, I want to look at two verses tonight, and they're found in verses 33 of Matthew, excuse me, Mark 15, and verse 34. We are in that place past our Lord's betrayal, past his arrest and even trial before the high priest, his trial before Pilate, his trial that he already had before Herod, Peter has already denied him. He was mocked by the Sanhedrin, as we read, by the soldiers. He was scourged, and he was condemned to death by crucifixion. 
We read that he was forced to carry his own cross until that man Simon of Cyrene was pressed into service to carry it for him out of the city to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And the scripture is clear in 1525 of Mark that Mark just makes this statement that they crucified him. I mean, really, it's just a quick statement, and Mark declines the details of the crushing nails, the stretching of the limbs on the cross that was lifted up, that cross that would be dropped into that place, exerting a great deal of pain. Mark skips all of that. In fact, even in the other Gospels, he skips the excruciating pain of crucifixion, And in the other Gospels, what you do have is his repeated cry, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are, what? Doing. And so the soldiers gambled for his clothes. The rulers shouted that he saved others, but he can't save himself. Their words were spoken as an insult, but I think we know, the discerning reader, that those were the literal truth. He could not save himself and save you simultaneously. So he chose to sacrifice himself in order to save you. And so as we walk just here into verse 33 and verse 34 that we read, I just want to focus on two words that come before us tonight. Two words that will allow us to go into the Lord's Supper and remember his death. It is the word darkness and it is the word forsaken. In other words, verse 33 speaks of darkness. Verse 34 speaks in his cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so let's look at that as we remember Good Friday. First, the word darkness in verse 33 darkness. It says, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. There was darkness. Darkness on that first Good Friday. What's interesting when you think that there was darkness over the land, it was so opposite of his birth. You remember that when our Lord was born, the night sky around Bethlehem was filled with a supernatural light, as the text says in other Gospels, that the glory of the Lord had shone all around. In many other places in the Gospel, he was recognized by John the Baptist as the light that in coming in the world enlightens every man. Jesus said, you remember in John eight twelve that I am the light of the world, But here in verse 33, at the sixth hour, the Bible is clear that darkness was over the whole land. And so we know from 1525, what we just read, that the crucifixion began at the third hour. We know in Jewish timetable that the third hour is 9 a.m. And so if the darkness began at the sixth hour, he had been on the cross for three hours, and it was now 12 noon. 
And so as you come into the text here in verse 33, it's 12 noon. It's interesting from extra biblical reports, uh, actually from Pilate to the emperor Tiberius, he assumed that the emperor knew and had knowledge of the widespread darkness, even mentioning in extra biblical literature that it was from 12 to 3 in the afternoon. Now, we don't need that because the Bible says it, but it's recognized in extra-biblical history. When Luke describes this darkness, he uses the word darkness. He uses the word eklepo, and the word eklepo for darkness just means failing or ceasing to exist. Obviously, we get our English word, eclipse, is derived from that. So during that three-hour period from, you know, from 12 noon to 3, there was darkness. In fact, Luke states in Luke 23 that the sun, he says it this way, was obscured. Now, Scripture indicates that the crucifixion darkness was we understand it was a physical darkness. I don't want to make it a metaphor. It was dark. The sun was obscured. But if you've been reading through the Bible, and many of you have for a number of years, you know that darkness in the Scripture was a mark of judgment for man's sinfulness and his rebellion. In fact, I, some of the Scriptures will come up when Assyria was used by God to punish Israel, Isaiah spoke in 530 of the darkness and the distress that would cover the land. I do believe that he's talking about a darkness, and, but at the same time, darkness is a metaphor for something greater. It's a metaphor for something that God is judging sin. When you look in the Old Testament under that phrase, the day of the Lord, in Isaiah 13.10, when it speaks of the future day of the Lord, it says the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light, and that the sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light, and I will punish the world, the next phrase would be, for its evil. And so darkness came. It was a picture of judgment. It will be at the end of the world. In fact, I'm really glad that you're here tonight. I just don't know how much we'll be able to meet in freedom going forward. And so for you to be here tonight and for us to be in the hearing of the word of God, I'm glad you're here because the future speaks of that darkness Joel wrote in his prophecy of the day of the Lord, in Joel 2, 2, I believe, that it's a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So these prophets spoke of this darkness. Amos, the prophet, said, will not the day of the Lord, speaking of that future day, be a day of the, of darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it. So God's judgment is associated with darkness, and it's given that judgment because of man's sinfulness. In fact, you can just keep going. I'm just highlighting a few 
Peter, speaking of the character of God, said that God cast the rebellious angels into hell and committed them unto the pit of darkness reserved for judgment. It's all over the scripture. In fact, Jesus frequently spoke of hell in terms of a place he called it outer darkness. So darkness, do you remember, was spread over the land of Egypt before the first Passover and now before the ultimate Passover, darkness prevails again. Just put yourself back there just for a moment. Back on that first Good Friday, he was put on that cross at, at 9 a.m. And by 12 noon, there was darkness over all of the land. It is a metaphor, certainly a reality, but a metaphor as well of God's judgment being poured out at the cross for your sinfulness. In fact, tonight we take of the Lord's Supper and here he was your substitute for God's judgment on sin. What's interesting when you look back at least at the accounts in Mark 14, 33, our Lord's very soul was troubled. He was sorrowful even unto death. In fact, the agony that he bore in the garden was almost sufficient just to kill him. In fact, Luke describes in his gospel that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down, you remember that, on the ground. That is a condition called hematidrosis that actually can occur under very heavy distress. Subcutaneous capillaries burst under the stress and the blood mingled with one's perspiration would exit through your sweat glands and he sweat great drops of blood. But before he cried out in verse 34, you know, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The other gospels state that he cried out, do you remember? And asked if this cup could, what? Pass from me. And you might ask, what is the cup that he asked to be passed that he didn't want to drink? And the cup, you know, is not the physical pain of the cross. That's not his heart. The cup that he asked if it's possible to let it pass from him was not the torture of the soldiers, though that was horrific. Our Lord did not fear those things. The cup, as well in the Old Testament, was a symbol of God's wrath against sin. Isaiah 51, 17 says, O Jerusalem, you have drunk at the hand of the Lord, and it's called there the cup of his fury. The cup in the Old Testament was the cup of his wrath. Jeremiah 25, 15, where the Lord said, Take this wine, the cup of fury, from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And so the cup symbolizes a place of judgment where your sins were placed actually upon the Lord Jesus Christ as he stands in your place as your substitute. I think to say it concisely, all the scripture is profoundly telling us is the wrath 
was poured out on Christ for your sin. So darkness comes over the land. He prays to let this cup pass from me and praise God. He prays, not my will, but thy will be done. He accepts the cup, but he's drinking that because at that moment, uh, really, if he was born in uh, 2000, excuse me, in uh, you know, 00 uh, AD, or if he was born at 003 AD and lived to 33 AD, this is what was taking place on the cross. So the raw horror of such darkness and the judgment of God for our sin should cause us to worship tonight at the communion as we partake of the elements in just a second. So there was darkness. But secondly, I want you to know that he was forsaken. Do you see that in verse 34? At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, Mark translates it for us, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So not only did darkness come, but secondly, in some measure, as the text says that God the Father for some time, why Jesus bore your sin and my sin on the cross, God the Father forsook Christ. Now the question would come up theologically, what is meant by that? In what way did God forsake Christ? He, Jesus, you see it there. My God, why have you forsaken me? And before you're so quick to think that I know what this is, the mystery of this verse was so great that Martin Luther, upon reading this, is said to have gone into seclusion for a length of time to understand the depth of such a scripture. But when he came back, he was more confused than when he began. So even the church father, Martin Luther, was in awe of this statement. I do not claim to understand the depth of this verse, but allow me to, as I see it, to best explain it to you. I think you would agree with me that when he cries out here on your behalf, it is not his physical death itself that caused him such distress. In fact, he said in John 12, 27, that Jesus knew he had come to die. He knew that. In fact, it says in one text that for this purpose, I came to this hour. So what does it mean to be forsaken, if you will? I mean, I think you and I know that he came into his own and his own, what, did not receive him. All the disciples just this week and a few days previously had turned and fled and abandoned him. Peter, the great apostle, denied him three times, even calling down a curse. The religious leaders who were supposed to offer help and even security brutally mocked him and spit on him. The soldiers who were given to protect people pummeled him with their fist. 
So what does it mean to be forsaken? In many ways, I think it is beyond our comprehension. But I think I would say it this way, that here, God the Father, Jesus cried out, forsook, if you will, the Son momentarily on the cross. The physical agony of the cross was nothing to Christ to be in forsaken by the Father. Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Listen, beloved, as Jesus bore the guilt of your sins, God the Father, creator, Lord of the universe, poured out his only begotten son Onto him the full fury of his wrath. In other words, momentarily on that cross, his father forsook him and he was left utterly alone. And I think that's because it says in Habakkuk 1.13 that his eyes are too pure to look on evil. So at that moment, on that Good Friday, the sun goes obscure. Darkness prevails over the land, and while Jesus is bearing your sin and the sins of all those who would trust him into eternity, here the Father, it says, forsook him. He's utterly alone. GCV, let me just say this. Maybe you would argue with me. I think this is possibly the greatest moment in the history of the world. You're here tonight. I'm so glad you've come. We're reading the scripture. We're partaking of this moment. It may be the greatest moment in the history of the world. I say that because justice would not be winked at and your sin would be fully punished in the person of Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul made this statement. He said, on the cross, Jesus becomes in the sight of God the most grotesque display of ugliness imaginable. He is now polluted with the cumulative filth of the sin that he bears for us, end of quote, that he bears for you. Jesus, in that moment, became the object of the intense hatred and vengeance against sin that God had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, would be forsaken. He couldn't look on sin, and so he cried out in just that moment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What a statement. Now, this doesn't mean why have you left me forever, Jesus knew, of course, we studied that in John, that he was leaving the world and going to his father. That's in 1428. He knew, according to all the gospels, that he would die and he would rise again and that he would ascend into glory. What is this then? His cry then was from the depths of his heart, as God's wrath was spent on him, and, and it was the weight of sin, your sin, that was being removed, 
if you will, on that cross. And with a shout of victory in the other gospel, John 19, Jesus cried out, it is what? Finished. John 19.30, and finished was used in the business world to signify the final payment has been made. Finished means to be paid in full. So Good Friday is good. It is good because the cross was God's divine plan to remove our judgment, the darkness that came, and to remove the fact that the Father would have to, if you will, turn his back as the Lord Jesus Christ took your sin. Beloved, do you understand, and we do, you know this many times in the scripture, how many times it says that Christ took your sin? He took your sin. Do you remember in statements like Isaiah 53, you can read it on your own, surely our great griefs he himself, what? Bore. He bore your griefs. It says our sorrows he carried. He was, this is for you, pierced through for our, what? Transgressions. Crushed, Isaiah says, for our iniquities. And I think you know it well in Isaiah 53, 6, that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then down in Isaiah 53, 12, it says that he bore the sin of many. So if I could just take you back to that first Good Friday, darkness came because God would judge the land, he would judge the world, and he would even at that point judge your sin through his son on the cross. You know, it's not just in Isaiah 53. Paul declared in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made Christ to be, what? Sin. I mean, I'm just even as I speak, it's almost humanly, humanly impossible to fathom that. He made Christ to be sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Christ, according to Galatians 3.13, became a curse for us, for you. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.28, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, and if you're here in Christ, you're part of the many. Peter said in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And so in that moment, he was forsaken by his father as he bore the wrath of God against sin. So scriptures reveal, you would agree, that God the Father put our sins on Christ. But you might say tonight, how does that work? What do you mean he bore my sin? He carried my sorrows. He became a curse for us. How does that work? Listen carefully. In the same way in which Adam's sin, sins if you will, were imputed to us, 
So God, the Father, imputed our sins to Christ. And what that means is that God sees your sins as belonging to Christ. And because God is the the definer of truth, when God thinks of our sins as belonging to Christ, then in fact, they actually belong to Christ. Now, qualify it. This does not mean that God thought that Christ himself committed the sins or that Christ himself has a sinful nature, but rather that the guilt of your sin, the punishment for that sin is seen by God as belonging to Christ rather than to you. I mean, that is just a profound, glorious truth out of the Scripture. Let me, let me illustrate it. We cannot live very long, how, have, can you, without facing the pain of rejection. Whether it be rejection by a close friend, or a parent, or a child, or by a wife, or by a husband... Yet, I would think that usually, in every case, there is at least some thought that we could have done something different, maybe. Maybe even just a very small part, maybe we would would say that we bear that fault and we share in that. But I want you to know tonight that that is not so with Jesus. He was sinless. In fact, it says in John 13, for having loved his own who were in the world, it says there, do you remember, that he loved them to the very end? He had only loved them, and in return, all of his disciples abandoned him. And and far worse than being forsaken, even by a close friend, was that of the Lord Jesus Christ, who on your behalf was cut off from the Father, his sweetest and deepest joy for all of his earthly life. When Jesus at that moment cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was cut off from the fellowship with his Father that had been the unfailing source of his greatest joy in a life that was filled with sorrow. And as Jesus bore our sins on the cross, he had to momentarily be abandoned by his heavenly Father. Listen, he did all of that for you, (laughs) for me. Darkness came. God was pouring out his wrath on the earth upon a son. His son was forsaken by the Father for you as he took your sin, as your sin was once imputed from Adam to you, your sin is now imputed through faith to the person of Christ. Look at it this way, and you know this statement, that he became obedient to the point of death, right? Even death on a cross. And what's mind-boggling, and you know this, maybe it just came to me, He voluntarily did this for you. He willingly gave up his life for 
you. So darkness came as he took the judgment that you and I deserved. He was forsaken by the Father that your sins might be covered. And so I'm going to say it again. He could not save himself and save you simultaneously. So he chose to sacrifice himself in order to save you forever. Beloved, this is the gospel. This is Good Friday. Amen.